Agatha Christie, Conan Doyle, Mary Higgins Clark, Dorothy Sayers. The great mystery writers hold their hands close to their bodies, and it is not until just the right moment in the game that they reveal what's going on. From books to TV to the movies, everyone loves this moment of revelation. God has written his own mystery, and Dave Wurtson, our Truth Encounter study leader, will help us discover what it has to do with our lives today. How many of you are like me? You love a good mystery. Anybody into Agatha Christie? Uh, Mary Higgins Clark. It just seems like uh, the women are the ones that really get into the mysteries and really know how to write them. Dorothy Sayers was the only uh, woman that was in C.S. Lewis. She was a famous professor in England, wrote a tremendous books on apologetics. Dorothy Sayers was part of his inner circle, and she was not only a, a world-class scholar on Dante, she also wrote mystery stories and some of the best. Lord Peter Whimsey was her great big hero. The thing about a mystery, what makes a mystery really work is that a mystery writer holds their cards really close to them. They're not one of these sloppy players and we'll make it rook, okay, so it'll be holy. Uh, it's not someone that lets their hand be seen by everybody at the table. A good mystery writer holds their cards close to their body and they don't let you know what they have until just the right moment. That's what a, a mystery writer does. And that's what's the allure of the mystery, that you wait for the right timing. You wait for just that right moment, and that's when it all comes together. Well, did you know that God is a mystery writer? He said, yeah, every good mystery has to have a villain. You have to have a murderer to make it really a great mystery. And what I want you to know is that this, in the Bible, Satan is a murderer. From the beginning, he's been lying and murdering. In fact, the whole story of the Old Testament is a story of this terrible, heinous villain that's trying to murder the promised line of the Messiah. And that's why the Jewish people are persecuted. And that's why there's the kingdom of Egypt and the kingdom of Babylon that tries to wipe out God's chosen people because there's a villain behind it all and that villain is a murderer. There's also every good mystery has to have a good guy. It has to have a good hero. And in our story, Jesus is the ultimate good one. He's the ultimate deliverer. He's the ultimate one that's going to solve the thing. Right at the climactic moment, the villain's able to murder the hero in our story. And that messes it all up. It just seems like the whole story is ruined. Because everybody knows that when you write a good mystery and when the murderer gets ready to murder the, 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 the key good person in the story, you don't let it happen. If you do, the story turns out bad. It means an evil one. And that's the tension you have in the gospel narrative. It looks when Jesus suffers on the cross that God has blown his mystery writing. But on the third day, on the third day, the ultimate turning of the tables takes place. And not just in a, in a, in a detective novel, not just on the stage, but in real life, on the stage of history, the ultimate giver of mysteries has his son rise again from the dead. And the incredible story that through this powerful son of God who has conquered death, we can have life. That's the story that God is writing. But you know what? The Apostle Paul is telling us that that's not the end of the mystery. That's not all there is to the mystery. The Apostle Paul has been saying that he has received further insight into that mystery. 
That mystery, when Jesus rose again from the dead, could have gone on and said, God's chosen people, the Jewish people, will now have the fulfillment of their Old Testament promises. After all, God promised in the Old Testament that there would be a kingdom of David, and now the son of David has risen from the dead. He can be the eternal king. God promised the Old Testament people that they would be given the land of Israel, and they would become a great nation that would rule over the earth in a kingdom of peace and love and prosperity. All those promises are in the book of Isaiah. The story could have been that kind of a story. But God had another twist in mind. And what happened in Acts chapter 2, suddenly Jesus, the exalted Christ, gave the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came upon a group of 120. They were all Jews. And they got all excited and they started telling everybody at Jerusalem about the truth of who Jesus was. And, and over 3,000 and then 5,000 more. And, the, and, the, and this new group of people that have found out that Jesus has, has risen from the dead start proliferating all around the city of Jerusalem. But the Lord didn't let it stop there. Some of those disciples go up into Samaria. And Samaritans have the Holy Spirit come upon them just like the Jews in Jerusalem did. And in Acts chapter 10, the Lord takes the foundational apostle, the apostle Peter, and the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10 is called by the Holy Spirit. God had to even hit him in the head with a vision. He had to see this weird vision of all these different kinds of food to break down his prejudices because he's a Jew. He doesn't meet with unclean Gentiles like us. He doesn't like to touch us. He doesn't like to eat with us. In fact, if, if he touches us, he feels unclean. The apostle Paul has to, has to tear down all those blocks. And Cornelius' servants come to him, and Peter, after having this vision, knows, I've got to go. And of all things, he goes to this Roman centurion. He's Jewish. And the Roman centurions are the ones that are, that are mean to his people, and that they abuse his people. And some of them even put his people on the cross. The Romans are the bad guys. And yet Peter goes to this Roman centurion's house and tells him the story of Jesus, how Jesus died and how Jesus rose again. And how he fulfills the promises that God, the promises of forgiveness, the promises of eternal life. And amazingly, the Holy Spirit comes upon those Gentiles. The church had a great big fight about this in Acts chapter 15. It almost tore the church apart. And the Apostle Paul was the great champion, although all the apostles joined him in that. And it's something that we all take for granted. In fact, most of you are Gentile. I'm from a Gentile heritage. Very few of you. There's a few of you in, in our Texas area that are from a Jewish culture. And so it's hard for us because it's not something we're working with every day unless we travel back to the East Coast or unless you go to some of the major Jewish populations. You're not aware that this is really a big issue. But one of the most incredible things in the early church is the Holy Spirit said, Jews and Gentiles are going to be united as one. And they're going to be created into a new group called the church. When Paul talks like this, he's not saying you'll become a member of Midlothian Bible Church. I don't want you to be proud about being a member of Midlothian Bible Church. I don't want you, you know, to, to feel that you're part of an in-group because you're part of Midlothian Bible Church. And we don't want to think of First Baptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Assembly of God and all those other churches as being estranged from us or different from us. And by the way, those are powerful forces of estrangement. One of the reasons why your unbelieving friends don't believe that Jesus is the answer is because we as the followers of Jesus have all these walls between us. 
and the Apostle Paul was speaking to this in the first century. He was saying this. The Jews and the Gentiles are now one people. And every people that's united together have to have a basis of unity. And that basis of unity is Jesus. What I want you to think hard in your life, whenever you meet somebody, red, yellow, black, and white, when you meet someone that's a Yankee, that's a barrier. Yankee. That's estrangement. They're not part of us. They're not one with us. The Apostle Paul is saying this. All those barriers, all those estrangements, different languages, different races, from different parts of the world, all that comes crashing down in Jesus. Amen? Now that's what we need to be about as a church family. And that's the mystery that we want to talk about today. A further development of the mystery story, this incredible, wondrous story that God has taken down all the barriers. And instead of just working with an ethnic group of people called the Jewish people, now in the plan of redemption, Jesus throws it wide open. Anybody on the earth can receive the forgiveness of Jesus. And when they do, nobody excluded. They can all come. And when they do, they become fellow heirs with God's people. I am looking today at God's temple. As I look around this room, you are living stones. A temple is a place where God dwells, and God dwells. If you've invited Jesus in your heart, God dwells in you. Now, you're saying amen to me, and I sense, because this, this is my brothers and sisters. You go, amen, preach it, Dave. That's really what I want. Man, we love that mystery story. Man, we love the fact that we're part of the in-group. We got it. But I want to share something with you. Not everybody likes God's mystery. The Apostle Paul paid dearly because he taught what I just taught you. Everybody loves a good mystery, don't they? And the answer to that question is no. Some people really don't like this all-inclusive policy. And they're exclusive. In fact, in the first century, as we open up our passage to Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 is in jail. And that's a good place for a preacher to be. Because one of the things you find out when the preacher's in jail, you find out that they really believe what they're talking about. In fact, there's some of you that are here saying, man, I'd believe some of this stuff if I believed that the guy teaching me it really believed it. It's one of the big problems in our own society. It's hard when, you know, you prosper because of what you say about Jesus. But don't ever miss the fact that just because right now, in many ways in the United States, there is a lot of blessing and there's a lot of prosperity because of declaring the truth about Jesus. But I want you to ask yourself the question, what do I believe that I would be willing to go to prison for? You say, Dave, what are you talking about that? Because the Apostle Paul is going to talk to us in, in Ephesians chapter 3 as we go on and clarify this mystery story, this new insight into the plan of God that Paul is talking about. The very first thing we're confronted with is the idea that Paul is a prisoner of Jesus Christ for us. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the reason goes back to chapter 2, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. The fact that Jews and Gentiles have now become fellow heirs, united together as one people of God, fellow partakers of the promise, all that you've learned about the fact that you're the new temple. For this reason, because I preach that, Paul is saying, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, now, after he says that, we're going to have a long parenthesis. But I want to stop right there because we're going to come back to that in, in verse 14. 
The Apostle Paul is saying, I, Paul, and he's the Apostle Paul that received a revelation. going to talk to us about that, about how the Holy Spirit gave him insight into what we're teaching you today. But one of the things I want you to nail down is why should I even believe Paul? And that's a good question. Why should I believe Paul? And I want to share with you that as you live your life, you don't want to listen and believe to everything that somebody tells you. You want to listen to somebody and then watch what really happens in their life. Now, weird, crazy people can go to jail for the things they believe. And it can be all whacked up and it can produce terrible results. But in history, if you look at what's generated from what they said and what they believed, it won't have the ring of authenticity. So one of the things you want to do with the Apostle Paul is you want to read what he said, you want to see what happened in his life, and then you want to see what are the results from what he taught. What does it produce in people's lives? What does it produce in my own life? And the Apostle Paul would invite you to do that. Paul is saying, I am willing to be in jail for what I believed. He was in prison when he wrote this book because he taught that there was no longer a barrier between Jews and Gentiles. What happened was he went down to Jerusalem. He had a Gentile with him named Titus. And Titus was a purebred Gentile, not like Timothy that was, was Jewish. And so Paul wouldn't have Titus circumcised. He wouldn't let him become Jewish. Some of his old-time cronies, his old Jewish buddies that he lived with almost all of his life, he was one of their major leaders, their young up-and-coming stars, saw him with Titus in the city. They saw Paul in the temple area. They made a misjudgment and held that Paul was bringing Titus into the temple, which was against Jewish law, which he didn't do. He didn't bring him into the court of the Jews, the court of the men. He didn't do that. But they jumped to the conclusion because they hated what Paul was preaching around the world that you didn't have to be Jewish to get close to God. You didn't have to be Jewish and be circumcised and obey all the laws of Moses in order to have the Messiah in your life. And so he got in prison for two years. He was in prison in Caesarea. There, the Jewish leaders of his day had a plot against his life. That kind of fanaticism was against him. Then he ended up being taken to Rome, and he's now sitting in a Roman prison with a centurion, with a soldier chained to him, getting ready to go before the emperor Nero. Now, that's the setting. Paul's saying, I'm a prisoner. One of the things that, that I ask myself is, Dave, what are the things that I believe that I would be willing to go to prison for? It's a very important thing. Ask yourself, what do I believe today that I would be willing to go to prison for? Around the world, there are followers of Christ like you that are willing to go to prison because they believe in Jesus. We have brothers and sisters that when they read this text, they say, Paul, I know where you've been, what's going on, I'm there now. I want you to say something else. He's actually the prisoner of Jesus Christ. It's a really important thing. I think that means, first of all, that he's a prisoner because of what he believes about Jesus. And that's why he's Christ's prisoners. You see, if you go to prison because you're a thief, we're not going to applaud you. Or if you go to prison because you've got too many speeding tickets, we're going to try to convict you to be repentant. But we're not going to applaud you for being in jail. You're in jail, like First Peter says, because you're a wrongdoer. And we all need to pay for that if we do wrong. And I could do that, and you could do it. But if you end up in jail because of your commitment and your conviction about Jesus, then we're going to honor you. 
and we're going to bless you. And we're going to really understand that that's part of being a follower of Jesus. So that's part of what's going on. Another thing that Paul, I think, wants us to understand is that he's actually not the prisoner of Rome, but he's the prisoner of Jesus Christ. You say, Dave, what does that mean? When bad things happen to me, I think that Jesus screwed it all up. How about you? Have any of you ever felt you end up in prison? You end up in a really bad circumstance. Now, sometimes it happens to me because I mess up and disobey the Lord. But sometimes I'm floating along, really serving Jesus, doing what I need to do, and I end up, everything gets, is crazy. Terrible persecution and horrible kind of stuff happens. And it's easy for me in those situations to say, man, God's messed everything up, man. He's lost control here. God went to sleep at the controls. Paul has a great secret in his life. As he's living his life and maturing the Lord, Paul understands the Romans think I'm their prisoner, but in reality, I'm Jesus' prisoner. And that's why Paul is able to talk like he does. As you've read this book, have you felt that Paul is really depressed? Really downhearted, thinking that his whole faith has come crashing in, the whole thing of this following Jesus. As you read the book, he said, man, don't follow Jesus because you're going to end up in a Roman jail for it. And that screws everything up. Man, I thought I got onto this Jesus thing to have a happy, meaningful life, and now I'm in jail, alienated from the ones I love, and I don't know what's going to happen. I might even end up with my head cut off. So, man, this Jesus thing is kind of a rough thing. Is that what he's telling you? No. The Apostle Paul, as we read this book, is full of love. He's filled with incredible wonder at what Jesus has done. You say, well, how in the world could Paul do that? Because he allowed the Holy Spirit to help him understand that he was really Christ's prisoners. And I don't think Paul really understood that. But you know what? It's because Paul was in prison that I can teach you from the book of Ephesians today. You know why you say, Dave, why do you say that? Because us preachers, as long as we're on the run, we use our mouth. Because we go and go and go and go, and we talk and talk and talk and talk. And if you're, and if you're a mouth in God's family, if you've been gifted with a passion to communicate, you want to go into the synagogues, you want to go into the churches, you want to go into the Kiwanis' Club, go into the Rotary, go into all things, and you want to represent Christ. How many of you would say, some of you that know me well, what do I do? I talk, 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 right? And you travel. <laughs> and the Apostle Paul was like that in the body of Christ. Now, how did the Lord get him to write? He put him in jail. It wasn't Jesus blowing the program. Jesus manipulated the whole Rome, not manipulated, but he controlled the whole Roman Empire so that Paul could have an expense-paid trip from Jerusalem to Caesarea to Rome. And so he would stop for about four years and all the things that he was communicating orally to the churches and all that he was teaching them, he committed it to writing through these marvelous letters. Amen? Brother and sister, it's really easy to say amen when you see how it all worked out. We've got 2,000 years of history. University professors teach what Paul wrote. But when he was in jail, it was tough to believe I'm the prisoner of Jesus. What are you going through today? What prison experience are you going through today? that you feel like it's escaped Jesus' notice, that Jesus has messed it up, and that, that the forces of evil and the bad side of this mystery story, story are, are wiping me out. And Jesus comes to you today and says, he wants you to just rest in him. And like Paul the baby to say, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and my Lord is in control, and he's protecting me. 
And that's what's going to enable you to have the spirit that Paul had and the heart that Paul had as you go through hard times. The final thing I want you to realize about Paul's imprisonment is that he says, I'm in prison for you. If you're an African-American, one of the things that you need to learn about, and those of you that have friends, you need to enter deeply into their feelings of someone like Martin Luther King. Why, if you go to Tony Evans' church, we see Martin Luther King's big picture right in the foyer. Because Martin Luther King thought it was really wrong if you just had a different color skin that you had to drink water at a different water fountain. And right now we say, hey, you know, that sounds crazy to us. We feel like, how can anybody, but we live in a country where that happened. Or you had to sit in a different part of the bus. And Martin Luther King believed that all men were created equal, that the Declaration of Independence really meant in his great I Have a Dream speech in Washington before the Lincoln Memorial, what he did was weave together the Old Testament, as I've often taught you, and weave together the Declaration of Independence and weave together the great founding principles of our country. But you know what? Martin Luther King wrote letters from a Birmingham jail. The Martin Luther King went to jail for what he believed. And so if you're an African-American, you would say Martin Luther King was in jail for me. There's a lot of African-American kids that don't even think about drinking at the same water fountain as all their white friends. They don't even think about being in a certain place in the bus. They don't even think about some of the things that they're able to do, the freedoms they have, and, and all that. And we, and we have a long way to go. But an African-American that knows the history knows he was in jail for me. And they're proud of it. The Apostle Paul is saying, I'm in jail for you Gentiles. The reason I'm in jail is because I believe that you should be included in the in-group, that you shouldn't be excluded. And we want to understand, we want to enter deeply into what he's saying. This is a man that has that kind of heart. And every time I study the Apostle Paul, and every time I enter deeply into the, into the way that he lived, I just get to down my knees and say, Lord, I am so far away from having the integrity and the heart and the passion and the conviction and the willingness to suffer for what I believe. And I say, Holy Spirit, I want to be on the way. I want you to help me to be entering into that kind of integrity and that kind of commitment. How about you? Now, the Apostle Paul gets so excited about this message that he's received that he has a long parenthesis here. And I love this because, because I have long parentheses, and I don't always tie my messages all neatly together. One, two, three, four. And I you say, well, Dave, what's your biblical basis for that? Well, the Apostle Paul didn't do it, so maybe I don't need to do it all the time. I'm just teasing a little bit. But what the Apostle Paul does in verse 1 is he, he, he just suddenly hits them. I want to talk to them more about this mystery. And all the way until verse 14, where he comes back to his prayer for the Gentiles, he had a digression. Let's look at it. He says this in verse 2. He said, Surely you have heard about the stewardship or the household management of God's grace. That word administration, those of you that are good administrators, is great insight. The Apostle Paul is saying, I am a household steward. I'm the one that's responsible for carrying out the plans of God in this particular area. And that's a very powerful thing. Paul views his life as being a stewardship, as being a trust that he's received from the Lord. And his specific assignment, he's focused, his specific assignment is to tell us Gentiles that we can get in on the incredible relationship with God that the Jewish people enjoyed as well. Because I want you, surely you've heard about my stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, now we're going to tell us what that stewardship is. What is it that he specially received from the Lord? It was the mystery. 
It was a mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. The Apostle Paul is saying, I am not teaching you something I figured out. It's not because I'm a great scholar. It's not because I understand things better than you through my own effort. The Apostle Paul is saying on the Damascus road, the Son of God talked to me. Now, you have to decide whether you believe that he's telling the truth, but that's the basis of what he's teaching us. He's saying, I then went out into the wilderness, and I was taught by God. In the book of Galatians, he says, I didn't learn what I teach because I spent time with James and John and Peter, the Jerusalem apostles, the pillars of the faith. The Apostle Paul is saying, I was alone with God, and I'm one of those prophets. I'm one of the apostles, one of the foundational um, givers of revelation that Dave talked about in chapter 2. One of the foundational men of the church. Jesus, the chief cornerstone. He's saying that what I'm telling you, and what we're celebrating today, that Jews and Gentiles can be united as one, is not something he figured out. It's not because he had a PhD from Harvard. It's because Jesus revealed it through his Holy Spirit to him. Now, you have to analyze whether you're going to accept that, but that's the Apostle Paul's ground of authority. He has got a direct word from the Lord, and that's what revelation is. It's been unveiled to him, it's been disclosed to him, and now he's helping us to understand that revelation as well. He says, in reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, and it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God, of God's holy apostles and prophets. Very powerful thing. Did you know that the Old Testament, if I asked Moses, Moses, do you know there's going to come a day when you're going to have Jews and Gentiles all united together in one group called the church, the bride of Jesus, that's going to be the special heartbeat of God forever and ever and ever. Moses would scratch his head and say, you mean to tell me that Gentiles are not going to have to get circumcised? They're not going to have to have the Sabbath. They're not going to have to keep all the 613 rules and regulations that God revealed to me. I said, that's right, Moses. Moses would scratch his head and say, man, that's a new thing. If I asked King David those questions, he would say the same thing. Man, that's a new thing. If I asked Ezekiel, the Old Testament did talk about us. In fact, when God made the promise to Abraham, he said, Abraham, through you, all the people on earth will be blessed. So from the very beginning, God has been inclusive and not exclusive. But in the Old Testament, it all happened through his people. And if I was an Old Testament rabbi teaching you today, an Old Testament priest, and I would be telling you, Gentiles, you need to join us. You need to become one of God's people. You need to enter through that gate. You need to join with us. Because that's the way that the Lord was moving in the Old Testament. Now, they were all saved by looking forward to the Messiah, just the way we are. But that was the specific revelation that God gave. Paul is saying in times past, it wasn't revealed that there was going to be a new oneness in the people of God. And those physical barriers were going to be torn apart. The Apostle Paul is saying the authority that I have to make those kinds of changes come from God. Very powerful thing. He's saying, you'll understand why I'm teaching you the way I'm teaching you with the book of Ephesians because God's Spirit directly revealed it to me. And the Apostle Paul is claiming to be a mouthpiece of God, just like Ezekiel was, just like Isaiah was. Now, he talks to us about the content of this mystery in verse 6. This mystery is that through the good news, the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. They are members together of one body. And they are sharers together in the promise in the Holy Spirit. 
Those are incredible words. The Apostle Paul is nailing it for us. As I look at you today, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying is, through the good news, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, if there has come that time in your life where you have met the biblical Jesus, you thanked him for dying for you, you trusted the fact that he rose again to give you new life, you invited him to come into your life, then I want you to know who you are. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest tragedies and one of the things that keep us from telling others about Jesus and getting excited about him is because Satan sits on us and doesn't, call, and doesn't allow us to see who you are. I want you to know who you are in Christ. It says right here. It says, this mystery through the gospel, the good news, the Gentiles have become heirs together with Israel. When you read the Old Testament promises, you know what it means to be an heir of God? Like, I was just on a ship, and it was nice to be in the Victorian era. A ship is like an old Victorian mansion. And if, if you're on the top floor, everyone else serves you. You inherit the blessings. Now, it's a hierarchy based on money, because you put down money for the ticket, and then the servants, you know, they give you service for the payment that you made. But you know what? It's really cool to be on the top floor. It's really cool to be able to have, you know, people making your bed and, you know, Mary says, I need to continue it now for the next several years. It's really cool to be able to walk into a dining room and have people serve you. What scriptures are telling us is when you get to heaven, you're going to be right at the top, right at the top of the hierarchy. And this is a holy hierarchy. The angels, these supernatural beings of God, are our servants. That's who you are in Christ. And the incredible thing is, you might not have anything on earth. You might be in the poorhouse. You might not have enough clothes in your back. But if you have Jesus, then you're an heir. The ocean belongs to you now because it's your daddy's ocean. The land belongs to you. When you see the rainfall and you feel the coldness of the northern winds come, it's all your daddy's thing. Have you ever stopped to think of how incredible it is? This is my daddy's. This is my father's. I'm an heir. I want you to drink from that. Some of you feel like, David, I don't know where my life is going. I don't know whether there's any meaning in my life. I've screwed it up so badly. If you have Jesus in your heart, you're okay. Because you are an heir. And you have inherited in the land that will never rust, will never wear out, will never decay. And no one can ever take that away from you. You are heirs of the promises that God made to his people Israel. And I want to say that in Christ and in the New Testament, the promises go far beyond even what God promised in Israel. Because the land of Canaan was the promised land for the Old Testament saint. One day, the land of Canaan, after they stop fighting over it, is going to be the kingdom of Jesus for a thousand years, but then it's going to all be burned up. And I don't want to have investments that get all burned up. But this morning, as I say before you, I've got a land that will never burn, and it will never end, and it has beauty that I can't even imagine, and that's where I'm going. Amen? That's what it means to be an heir of Christ, an heir of the promises of Israel. He says, second of all, you are not only fellow heirs. This is the mystery that you, through the gospel, you become heirs together with Israel. You become members together of one body. Brothers and sisters, this morning, we are one body, every one of us. 
What that means is Jesus is our head. Paul's going to develop this further in the book. Jesus is our head. And you are the hands and the feet and the ears and the eyes and all the different parts of the body. And as you worship together today and as you go out into the world, every time you meet a fellow believer, I want you to realize we are one body. And I want you to pray deeply about that because one of the most powerful things that's happening by the attack of the evil one is believers don't look upon themselves as one body. Some of you are from a charismatic background. Some of you have that whole stress and emphasis in your life. Some of us, for example, are from a Bible church background. I just want to take one of the fracture lines that there can be. You know what? It's easy to start to feel like I'm not one with them. You understand what I'm talking about? Somebody you find out, well, they have a little bit different slant on the body of Christ, and so we're no longer one. Some of you are from a Roman Catholic background. Some of you are from a Methodist background. And, and in this body of believers, as you start rubbing shoulders with fellow believers, you'll find out that they don't have the same tradition in their religious upbringing that you do. And you know what? You're going to be tempted not to stay together. Do you understand how powerful those forces are? From my background, for example... If I just happen to say that I don't think that a charismatic is necessarily filled with the devil, that it's not a satanic thing, if I'd say that maybe the Holy Spirit's doing something different or something, you know, a new door, and I have an openness of all, there's parts of my upbringing that automatically I'm out. And those are really powerful things. There are churches in our area, if you don't believe exactly what they believe about eschatology, about the pre-trib rapture and the, mid, and, and, and the tribulation period and the coming of the Lord, if you don't dot all those I's and cross all those T's, you're not part of our group. Brothers and sisters, that's why the unbelieving world hasn't been touched with the power of Jesus. Because we're not united. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know as your pastor teacher, you are mine. You belong to me. You are my hands, you're my feet, you're my eyes. I need you. I'm united with you. Red and yellow, black and white. We need you. And my heart, what the Apostle Paul is teaching, what the Lord Jesus is trying to teach me, is this is really serious stuff. That when you meet a fellow believer from First Baptist, you are totally one with them. If you meet a Roman Catholic and you find out that they have a personal relationship with Jesus, they believe that Jesus died for them, they believe that Jesus rose the earth from the dead, and they've, and they've invited Jesus to come into their life, and they truly have been born again, they are your brother, they are your sister. The incredible thing that God is doing around the world is he's, he's creating this oneness, this people of God. I close with this as a comparable illustration. Ed Hughes, that teaches, uh, he's the college pastor of Wheaton, was just reading what the Lord burdened his heart about this path. He told a story about the evangelical church in Belgium. Belgium is a cold country. Very hard to reach people for Jesus. And the church was going nowhere in Belgium. He was so exercised about it that he just got down and just spent some days fasting and praying. The end of that time of fasting and prayer, the Lord led him. He bought a house, a great big mansion. And he got some believers from all the different ethnic groups in Belgium and all the different social stratas, all these different groups that in Belgium don't get along at all. They don't associate at all. And you know what? He invited them to come and move into that house. And that's what they did. Several of them, 10 or 12 families from all different backgrounds, Belgian evangelical families, they moved in together. And boy, did they fight. 
But you know what? They believed what Paul is saying here. They fought and they prayed and they said, Jesus, we've got to be one. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that unity and oneness is something that doesn't just happen? It's something that all of us struggle for and all of us work for. We fight the forces that make us feel like we don't belong. We fight the forces that make us feel like we've got to get away. We fight the forces that move us away from one another. And we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, we love you. And we praise you. And we want you to change our lives. And brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit causes us to be one body of faith, then unbelievers are going to be knocking the doors down to get into our small groups, to get into our family, to get into the oneness, to get into the love. The unbelieving world, in the 60s, the hippie cultures love to get together in huddles and sing about oneness and about love. And Satan tries to get believers to sing about hostility and alienation and separating from one another. And that's the greatest lie of Satan. The greatest lie has been, as we close, this is supposed to be unity between Jews and Gentiles. When I talk to one of my Jewish friends, a Jewish friend thinks that Jesus doesn't belong to them at all. You know why? Because the church that started out by having trouble letting the Gentiles in, when the Gentiles really got in, they threw all the Jews out. And that's one of the most powerful things that's created in anti-Semitism. We've created a church for 2,000 years that Jews honestly don't think that they belong because they're different. And brothers and sisters, the book of Ephesians wants us to open up to the Holy Spirit and be able to communicate to Jewish people, Jesus is a Jewish Savior. He is Jewish in his ethnic background. And we love you. And we don't feel alienated from you. And we long for you to not become like us culturally but we want you to become like us in our commitment to the Son of David, Jesus.